We are in 1 Samuel chapter 11, and we're looking at a positive story of King Saul. And in this chapter, what we really see is that Saul is a king bringing salvation or deliverance to the people of Jabesh Gilead. Uh, and I think it's very clear today that, that people in, in dire need are in need of a Savior. So, uh, I remember one of the times that I needed a Savior. I needed, I needed someone to come and rescue me. Uh, whenever I was 23, I, I took on my first church as a pastor. I was young. I was in seminary. The church was an hour and a half away from the school where I was attending and the house where I lived. So I would, I would go out Thursday night or, or Friday after my classes, and I'd stay there Friday, Saturday, Sunday, have full days of work there in the, in the town where I was ministering. And then on Sunday night, I would drive home after the evening service. Uh, and so it, it got, you know, depending on, depending on the season, it got dark by the time I was on the road. And we had these new fangled inventions back then called cell phones. Uh, do you remember how old you were when you got your first cell phone? 16. I was, I was 23 when I got my first cell phone. So whenever my, whenever my daughter asks me for a cell phone, I just say, you know, you can get a cell phone when I did, honey. You can get a cell phone when you're 23. Uh, and I started this tradition way back then whenever, whenever I was getting on the road. Instead of listening to the radio, I couldn't do that because my radio was stolen out of my truck. I would just pick up my cell phone and I'd call somebody and I would talk to them in that hour and a half drive on the way home. One Sunday evening, I was driving home. I was, I was in between two cities or two communities, I should say, the community of Iridel and the community of Meridian. Have y'all heard of these places? Tiny little communities uh, in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, when I was in between these two towns, my car just dies. There is no sound. There is no nothing, but I just had no power. And I slowly rolled to a stop, and I was talking to my parents on the phone. I thought, oh, my word, what's going on here? I had, I had no navigation. No, I mean, it was, it was the little Nokia bricks. Y'all remember those? Those were, those were awesome. But, but I, had, I had nothing except a dead car in the middle of nowhere. Got out of my car. It looked something like this, I think. Uh, this is what it looked like out there, just just deserted area, nothing out there, but but death waited me out there, right? Uh, and I really needed somebody to come and save me, to deliver me. And thankfully, uh, thankfully, I, as I was locked in my car and I started down the road, uh, I, I Googled it this week to find out how far I would have had to walk. So if I was in between the two cities and I, and I was walking, it would have taken me two hours to get to the next city, uh, two-hour walk, and then I would have had to buy a gas can, buy my gas, and then I had to walk two hours back to my car with a gas can. Um, and I was about 15 feet away from my car when thankfully on this deserted road where typically nobody would be driving hardly, someone pulled over and they stopped and they said, are you out of gas? Is something wrong with your car? And I'm like, yes. And they're like, man, that's a long walk. How about I give you a ride? This kind gentleman who did not know me saw my plight, saw that I needed help, picked me up off the side of the road, didn't know me from Adam, and and he drove me all the way to the gas station where I was able to buy a gas can, buy some gas. And he thought, man, that's a long walk back. You mind if I give you a ride back? And I'm like, I don't mind at all. Thank you so much. And so I had, I have somebody who rescued me. They came to my aid when I was in a time of need that they rescued me. And in our story today in 1 Samuel chapter 11, 
the city of Jabesh Gilead was in need of rescuing. They were surrounded by enemies who wanted to destroy them, who wanted to humiliate them, and they needed a savior. They needed a king to come to their aid. Let's catch up on where we've been so far in the book of 1 Samuel to give ourselves a little bit of context. If you remember, whenever the book opened up in the book of 1 Samuel, there was no king in Israel, and really the Lord served as the ruler of the people of God in Israel. But the people were not satisfied with that. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to be able to see their king, touch their king. They wanted their king to lead them out into battle. And so they rejected the Lord, and they called for a king, a king like the other nations had. And though they rejected the Lord, the Lord gave them what they asked for. And in chapter 10, when they were choosing the king, or when the king was revealed, it fell to this man named Saul, this young man who was a farmer. Uh, He was a Benjaminite of a small tribe. Uh, He was found to be the next king. And we are told at the end of chapter 10 that some men who were brave and valiant followed Saul back home. And they were his mighty men. They became the part of the core of his army. But other men looked at this farmer boy and said, how can this guy save us? And so when we turn to chapter 11, Saul is getting his first test of kingship. And we find that the situation was a dire one. Jabesh Gilead was on the east side of the Jordan. So if you have your your Bible maps in the back of your Bible, if you have a good memory and you think of it, the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea is typically what we think of Israel. But on the east side of the Jordan, there were two and a half tribes that were located out there. And they bordered a, a, a people called the Ammonites. And the Ammonites were the descendants of Lot, So they're really kind of like distant cousins to the Israelites, but they did not love the Israelites. In fact, they hated them. And the land that Israel was on, they thought was their land. They claimed the land. And so there was a king named Nahash, and Nahash wanted to wipe out Israel. He wanted to destroy them. In fact, if you read other ancient uh, ancient documents, there's a Josephus wrote this book called Antiquities. And in this book, it said that Nahash went around taking the right eye of every Israelite he could find. So you would just go out there and you'd find a sea of people without eyes. And it was because of this king. He would remove their right eye. So there were these men who were fighting against Nahash, and they ran to the city, Jabesh Gilead, and they realized that they are trapped. They're without hope. They can't stand a siege. He's going to break in. He's going to destroy them. So oftentimes, what do you do when you realize you have no hope and you're surrounded? you make a treaty. And they say, King, King Nahash, if, if you will, like, let us live, we'll be your servants. We'll, we'll serve you as our king. We'll become your subjects. We'll pay taxes. We'll fight your battles for you. Will you make a treaty with us? And King Nahash says, yes, I will make a treaty with you. And this word treaty in Hebrew can, translate, can be translated cut. So you cut a covenant, you cut a treaty. And typically, if you cut a covenant or you cut a treaty, what you do is you literally cut animals in half and you separate them and you seal the deal of the treaty by both parties, like walking through the cut animals. He says, you want to cut a treaty with me? That's fine. I'll cut a treaty with you. But rather than cutting an animal, 
I will cut your eyes. And you will have to walk around without your right eye. Why would he do this? Why cut their right eye out? A couple different reasons. One reason is because if you were a soldier back in these days, the way that you would fight was with a shield in your left hand and your weapon in your right hand. And in these days, your shields were tall enough that your shields, if you were holding it up against an enemy, the shield would cover your left eye. And so if your left eye was covered and your right eye had been taken out, you would be an ineffective soldier. And so oftentimes it's believed that he would do this in order to, to hobble the people, that they wouldn't be able to fight against him. But according to Scripture, the main reason why he did this is he wanted to humiliate Israel. He wanted to humiliate them. And the humiliation doesn't just come with making this treaty with taking an eye. But when the people said, King, okay, we, we have no hope. This is it. This is our only hope is to make this treaty with you. But it's a humiliation. Would you let us send out messengers for a few days? They can go out, spread the word, word in Israel. And if anyone is out there, they can come and they can rescue us. King Nahash of the Ammonites were so certain that nobody would come. He said, sure. He had no benefit in letting the messengers go out other than the fact that it humiliated them even more. There was no hope for the people of Jabesh Gilead. They were surrounded on every side. They were captive. I think there is a, a, a corresponding belief that people in our age today, people in the West, are still held captive. So I want to talk this evening a little bit about how people in the Western society are held captive. And I want to do this. I want, I want to preface this with three things. Like, why do I want to go into how we are held captive today? First, I, I, I want you to know this because I think this is the status of our culture, and knowing this can help us understand the culture better. Secondly, I want us to realize that this is how we held, are held captive today because it very well might be that we are held captive, and we might not even realize it. And we can't, we can't seek freedom from captivity until we actually know we're captives. And it very well might be the third reason. It might be that you're not held captive in this way. But understanding that this is how the world is held captive might make us more sympathetic to people, and it also might help us evangelize people, realizing how they are held captive. So how are we held captive today? That's, that's what I want to answer. How are we held captive today? I think we are held captive today through two things, through our identity and through also this idea of acceptance. People today in the Western world, we are always trying to find a people group or a cause to identify with, where we are able to include ourselves in a, in a group of people or in a community that helps identify us, that supports us, that gives us, that gives us a standing in our society. And then once we are inside that identity group, what do we do? We try to make sure we are accepted in that identity group that we learn the language of that people, that we, that we walk the walk, that we dress the dress, and we find ourselves in that identity community. Let me give you an example, because there are all sorts of different ways that we find our identity in things. Let me give the example of, a, of an author. 
you ever heard of J.K. Rowling? J.K. Rowling wrote the, the book series, uh, Harry Potter. Uh, it's, it's really enjoy the books myself. But J.K. Rowling is, a, is an author from Britain. And after she finished the book, she came out very strongly for the LGBTQ community. And whenever she came out strongly for the LGBTQ community, she was cheered and she was a champion and, and people were so happy and they put her up on a pedestal and they said, look at how brave she is. And she got encouraged and she got, she got the pats on the back and things seemed to be pretty good for her. However, last month, the month of June of this year, on Twitter, and, and Twitter, Twitter's dangerous, people. All right, stay off of Twitter. <laughs> but on Twitter, she had this comment that she made on Twitter. And as Christians, oftentimes I think we hear this comment, we think, well, yeah, that's just true. Uh, but this is what she said on Twitter in June. She says something along the lines, I'm trying to summarize here, the, that the gender or the sex that we are born with biologically is important and it matters. Right? Really, really racy stuff. Uh, but when she said that, that goes against the agenda of the community that she found her identity in. That went against the LGBTQ uh, community. So what happened to her? Whenever she stepped out of line from that community, they began to shame her. They began to attack her. They were aggressive against her. In fact, she has a, she doesn't have it, but whenever she wrote the book series Harry Potter, there were a few fan websites, one called uh, The Leaky Cauldron, the other one called MuggleNet. And whenever she came out with this tweet and she didn't apologize from it, they aggressively went after her. And they said, okay, if you're not going to apologize, if you're not going to get back into line, then we're going to do a few things. We are, no longer, we are no longer going to link to your books on our websites so you won't get the royalties. We're going to try and hurt you financially. They said not only that, but whenever we have our websites and all of our links on our page, we're going to remove your image. We're going to remove your likeness. We're going to remove your picture from the websites. Not only that, they said we're going to go a little bit further. We're going to stop referencing you by your name. In essence, they were trying to remove her. They were trying to erase her from any, any remembrance of her own works. This is, this is what I like to call like the, the identity trap that we find ourselves in. What are the different places we oftentimes find our identity? The world is a buffet of places to identify in. I think oftentimes we identify ourselves in political parties where we say, well, I am a Republican, I am a Democrat, or I am a Libertarian. And we look at the platforms of that political party and we agree on every one of them. And the, and the candidates they put forward, we are fully behind. But if we find our identity there, oftentimes we find that we're not allowed to disagree with anything that that political party says or will be attacked by our own. I think oftentimes we find our identity not maybe in our political party, but maybe in our, our sexual identity. And once we step out of lines, that shame is going to be poured on us, trying to draw us back in. I think this is happening right now with the idea of race and that you have to respond to the racial tensions in a particular way. And if you don't fall fully in line, then you're going to be shamed. This is done, I think, even with the coronavirus and the way that we have to wear masks. 
or not wear masks or, or how we respond, where if you fall out of alignment, then you are attacked. It's an identity trap. How does it work? I know, I know right now um, our, our family, we've lost all of our chickens. We used to have about 10 chickens out in the backyard. They were, uh, I grew up on the farm, so we didn't really name them, uh, except we were just really glad that they gave us eggs. Uh, but the other day when we went out there to, to take care of the chickens, my heart did a little patter because when I went out into the yard, it was like, it's like someone like poked a down pillow and just like threw it up in the air. And there were, there were feathers all over the place. What happened is raccoons got in our chicken coop and they ate all of our chickens, which was a little bit like insulting. It's like, you really need to eat 10 chickens? But that's what they did. They killed all my chickens. And so uh, I, I decided to get some retribution. So I got my live trap and I'm going to say, all right, you've got 10 of my chickens. I'm going to get 10 of you and I'm not going to stop till I get 10 of you. And so I've been setting a live trap in my yard. And, and this is how we catch the raccoons, is I set the trap, I open it up, I have the little, the little plate where they step on it, it closes them in, and I bait the trap. I usually bait it with something simple like a, an, an old apple that's about to go bad, and I'll just cut it and I'll throw it in there. But there's some type of bait that's needed for that trap to be set. When it comes to identity, I think the trap, the bait of the trap is this is if you agree with the platforms of this identity group, then you will be accepted and you will have a home and you will have support. And when you first join us, people are going to applaud. They're going to pat you on the back. They're going to talk about your bravery. They're going to be just so glad that you are there. And when you go there, what you find is that the trap is set and the door closes behind you and you're no longer allowed to have any other ideas or any other identities outside of that trap in fact if you do try to get out you'll find that there's a lot of aggression that tries to shame you back into line and at the end of the day what are you filled with no longer the encouragement and the acceptance of the community but you are filled with anxiety, and you're filled with fear. Because when you are in that group, you have to work to show yourself approved. You have to shame other people who are stepping out of line. You have to make sure that, that, that you are in the in group. It reminds me a lot of, of the movie The Help. Have you ever seen The Help? I read the book a couple years ago. I recently just watched the movie. Uh, this past week. It's a, it's a book about Jackson, Mississippi, and it follows some of the ladies in a, what is it called, a, like a junior league, where it's like a little society of women. Uh, and, and also, it follows the stories of, of the maids that raise their children and take care of their house. Uh, and this is what happens. It, it was a fascinating to see like this play out. But in the junior league, there was this one dominant lady named Hilly. And Hilly, like, ruled the roost, and everyone had to fall in line with what she said and her ideas. They were laws there. And everyone was trying to be accepted by her. And if you didn't have her acceptance, then you were literally shamed and pushed out. That just makes me think so much of this identity trap. 
where you have to work to be accepted by this group that you long to be accepted by. And you're always having to work to show yourself approved. And we are in a trap. Much like the trap that the people of Jabesh Gilead were in, there was nowhere for them to go. And if we find ourselves in our society, finds themselves in this type of trap today, what we really need is we need a savior. We need a redeemer. And that's the next thing we see in 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 4 through 11, we see that the messengers from Jebesh Gilead go out and, and they come to the Gibeah where Saul has his home. And in Gibeah, all these people that followed Saul, they heard the message and they were just cut deeply in their heart. They were mourning. They were weeping. Saul was out in the field with his oxen doing his farming thing. And when he gets back home, he hears all this mourning. And he said, what's going on? And they communicate the word of what's happening in Jabesh Gilead about King Nahash and how he is oppressing the people, how he's going to take their eye, how he is going to humiliate them and humiliate Israel's God and put shame on them. And we are told that the Holy Spirit rushed and came powerfully on Saul, like the prophets and like, like the judges of old, like Samson, like Gideon before him. He, he burned with the righteous anger of the Lord. And he took the oxen that he was out in the field with, and he sacrificed them to the Lord. He worshiped the Lord with them. And then he took the oxen and he cut them up into pieces. And he sent them out across the land. And he said, if you do not come behind me, if you do not support me, if you do not come behind Samuel, then what happened to these oxen will happen to your oxen. And we are told that the terror of the Lord fell upon Israel. Now you say, well, what does this terror of the Lord mean? It could mean on one hand, man, they don't want their oxen to end up like that. But most commentators I read this week said that that was not the terror that fell upon them. That this was much more like the terror that fell on Isaiah when he was in the presence of the Lord. That they realized that they were in the presence of a holy God who is about to work, and they wanted to make sure that they were found with the Lord. And so 330,000 men gathered, and they went out to Jabesh Gilead to redeem and to save the people in that city. It reminds me of a lot of this, this, this reference is getting a bit old, uh, of that of, of the Lord of the Rings movies. Y'all remember those movies? I love the Lord of the Rings movies. I'll, I'll, I'll use this until my dying day for illustrations. But in the second movie, uh, whenever the orcs and these monsters were, were gaining in power and gaining in strength, they were attacking this small kingdom of Rohan. And the riders of Rohan were scattered all over the place, uh, trying to fight against them, trying to protect the land. And so they weren't present in order to protect the kingdom of Rohan. So the king and all the people retreated to a fortress called Helm's Deep, and this massive fortress that had never been conquered before, but there weren't enough people to defend the walls. So Gandalf, this white wizard who's a Jesus figure in the story, says, listen, I'm going to go find the riders of Rohan, and I'm going to be gone for three days, but on the third day, look to the east at the rising of the sun, and we'll be there for you. And then you kind of have the best part of the movie, all right? This is, this is the battle of the movie where these orcs and these ogres, they, they attack the wall. And at first, it seems like the wall is going to stand and they're going to be all right. But slowly and surely, the enemy takes the city down. 
the wall is breached, and so everyone runs to the keep, and, and the enemy is banging down the door to the keep, their last, their last place of survival, and everyone inside says, we've got no hope. We are going to die here today. And so Gimli, the dwarf, blows on the great horn there, almost in this lament and they mount their horses so they can ride out and face the enemy and die fighting. But as they are riding out, it's like the third day. And the sun is, is rising over the mountains and the sun is shining. And then at the top of the mountain, you see Gandalf and behind him, like the riders of Rohan, descending on the enemy. Do y'all remember that? That's kind of what Saul is doing here. He's sent a messenger back to the people of Jabesh Gilead and said, by this time tomorrow, you are going to be rescued. I'm going to save you, and you are not going to be put to shame by Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. And that's exactly what Saul did here is he brought salvation to the people. We have to ask the question, how are we today delivered from these identity traps that I was just describing. Tim Keller, uh, is a retired pastor up in Manhattan, said that in today's culture, that identities and is, 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 is achieved, right? It's what we were talking about earlier, that we have to achieve our identity. But he said Christianity offers the only alternative where our identities are not achieved as Christians, but our identities are received as Christians. That if you fall into an identity identity trap of the culture and you have to work to show yourself approved, you have to strive to make, make sure that you are good with your identity group. But in Christianity, whenever we come in repentance and whenever we come broken, asking and pleading for God to save us, we do not have to work to be saved. Rather, Rather, God and Jesus Christ saves us, not because of any good that we have done, but because of his mercy, because of his goodness, because of his kindness. People today, they are tired of having to work to be approved. They are tired of, of all the pressures around them. If you, if you watch the movie version of The Help that I was describing earlier, at the very end of the movie, after Hilly, the, the, the leader of that junior league, is shamed herself and embarrassed herself, she tries to strike out at one of the main characters named Abilene, this, this, this maid who has no power, no political standing, no social standing, but she's just a hard-working, good person. She's threatened with a, with a lie. Of, of being a thief and is going to be turned into the police. And at the very end of the movie, this, this housemaid stands up to Hilly, this, 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 the, the, the villain of the movie, and she says, Miss Hilly, aren't you tired? Aren't you, aren't you tired of playing this game? Aren't you tired of hurting and shaming other people? Aren't you tired of, of the manipulation that you're facing? And when I look at today, and whenever I get on social media, that's what I see. I see a people who are, are absolutely weary and tired of playing the game, of being the person that society calls us to be. And there's this beautiful passage in Matthew chapter 11 
where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What Christianity offers is rest. What Christianity offers is is peace for our souls that we don't have to work for because Christ earned it on our behalf. So what do we need to do? The first thing we have to do, if we haven't done it already, is we have to run to Jesus. We have to run to Jesus in repentance and turning from the things we've been trying to find our identity in, and we have to run to him saying, you are my only hope. You are my rescue. You are my Savior. And Christians, even after we've done this once, we have to keep doing it again and again. Because though Jesus is our salvation, though he is our rescue, oftentimes we keep looking back to those other identity groups thinking, well, that's where I need to be for one reason or another. And we get in that trap again. But only Jesus can save us. I think another way we can apply this is that we have to realize that we do not have to live in the boxes that the world gives us to live in. Think about Jesus and his earthly life and his ministry. Whenever he was going about, there were all these different parties in Israel. You had the party of the, of the Sadducees, of the Pharisees, of the scribes, of the zealots, and each one with their own solution to the problems of the world. Each one saying, this is how you ought to live your life, and this is how you have to view the world. And here comes Jesus on the scene, and what does he do? He frustrates all of them. He frustrates all of them. He doesn't disagree with all of them, but he doesn't agree with all of them. He says, you are right on this issue, but you're wrong on that issue. And you are right on this issue, but you are wrong on this issue. And he goes party by party, affirming what needs to be affirmed, but also condemning what needs to be condemned. As Christians, this is the prophetic role that we have to live out on this earth. That when people are right, we say, yes, you are right. But where they're wrong, we say, you are wrong. And you know what's going to happen when we do this? We're going to be hated. We're going to be hated. If we as Christians try to live in a world and just get along with everybody, we're going to lose our identity in Christ. As a Christian, I tell this to, to young students all the time, but as a Christian, you will never be able to hold on to popularity. It's just not possible. As Christians, we try to walk this way of Jesus. But as a result, the world will hate us. Jesus in John chapter 15 said, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before you. That a servant cannot be greater than his master. Christ is calling you, Christ Community Church, to be courageous. 
that when you see the good in the world, you say this is good. But when you see things that are broken or things that are evil, that we say this is broken and this is evil and this is going to put you against the world. But you know what it also does is it keeps us out of that identity trap. And it keeps us in, it keeps us out of that cycle of always trying to seek the approval of other people. And it gives peace for our souls. This passage ends with a confirmation of Saul. All those people who thought that Saul couldn't rule, all those people who thought that Saul couldn't lead them into victory were now kind of in this outside group, right? And everyone who fought the battle with Saul said, let's go find those people who said that King Saul couldn't save us and let's put them to death. And King Saul says, you know what, let's not. Today is a day of victory for the Lord. Let's just celebrate. And so Saul, along with Samuel and the people who fought that battle, went back to, to, to Gilgal, and they had a renewal service, a renewal service where, where Saul's kingship was confirmed. And everyone agreed that he was the king that God had for them. There's an interesting part of this story that I think is easily missed. And it's a shadow of what was to happen later on with Jesus. King of the Ammonites, his name was Nahash. Nahash in his language meant serpent. And so we have the serpent oppressing the people of God. And we had a savior king coming to crush the head of the serpent and being confirmed as king. And it goes back and it reminds us of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Whenever God is cursing the serpent in the Garden of Eden, this is what he says to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He said, serpent, I am going to put division between you and the offspring of Eve. And you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. We see that coming to a partial fulfillment in King Saul crushing the head of the serpent but we see it ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ where he went to battle with the serpent. He went to battle with the, cru- with the curse and on the cross he defeated them. But we did not have a king like in 1 Samuel chapter 11 who just walked away in victory and was crowned king immediately and the people were all following him. Our king took on the shame took on the guilt of the world. And rather than being hoisted up on shoulders and marched through the land, he was buried. His confirmation did not come with the crown the day he defeated death, but his confirmation came with something much greater. It came with a resurrection, a resurrection that was a promise, that was a seal, that we can find freedom in Christ. Christ Community Church, we are free in Christ. So let's not bound ourselves to any other identity apart from him that dictates how we ought to live or how we ought to be or how we ought to think. But we can walk in his freedom. Let's stand and pray.